Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. Uh, I'm here with my colleague, Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Marvin. Good to see you again. And I'm Marvin Goldfried. And we're going to talk today about the uh, gap that sometimes we see therapeutically between a person's level of competence and their competence, their uh, confidence beforehand. In other words, they could be very, very competent, but for some reason, they don't anticipate their ability to handle the situation. They don't think of it. What they focus on is something bad happening. And it's, it's like very much like a GAD type thing. You know, what if, what if, what if, as opposed to if then. Now, I, I don't know. Have you seen much of this in, in your practice? My, my practice is, uh, is pretty much upscale. So I see a lot of this in mm -hmm. highly competent uh, patients. Not only have I seen a lot of it, but it's also a well-described thing in psychological research called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what they found in a series of elegant experiments was that people who were incompetent, people who were not particularly smart, greatly overestimated their competence. Whereas people who were very competent and very smart systematically underestimated their abilities they knew how much they didn't know, whereas people who are incompetent tend not to be able to evaluate their own incompetence. Yeah. And it's usually the second population that I see clinically. The first population... Uh, can't, can't afford your rates. Well, they could, probably could, but they don't think there's anything wrong with themselves. It's the other person's fault. So the question is, you know, why? Why does this occur? And this is all speculation. And and you know what? It's similar to somewhat, not 100 percent, the whole notion of the imposter syndrome. People tweet about this all the time. You know, high level professionals are tweeting about the imposter syndrome. And I once asked, I asked, what's the defining quality? And they spoke about insecurity and fear and all this negative stuff. And, and that's not the defining quality. Do you know that? You tell me. The, the defining quality is achievement, because if a person has not yet achieved anything, then they don't have the imposter syndrome. So here's a very, very interesting phenomenon we see in people everywhere and certainly in therapy. The discrepancy between how they view the world or how they view themselves and how other people view them. The subjective versus, if you 
take the view of others, the objective. And there's a whole area of research in social psychology that, that deals with this. The, um, it's the actor-observer phenomenon. And I don't know the research literature on that, but essentially it's uh, you are viewed by people in a certain way that may be very different from the way you view yourself. I think part of that is that people who are high achievers expect a very great deal of themselves that in Freudian terms that would be called superego. They tend to, an ego ideal, they tend to have very, very high standards mm -hmm. and they never feel they can meet those standards. Right. I, I would say to patients that you could win the Nobel Prize, be elected president and, and get an Olympic medal all on the same day. And the next day you'd be saying, you know, I haven't really achieved much today. What should I be doing next? Exactly. So there's a, a sense of perfectionism. And, and here's the irony. If we, if we just stop for a minute and we go to the basic research on people's predictions of their abilities, and here I'm thinking about the research of uh, uh, Bandora and self-efficacy, which is the extent to which a person can predict they're going to be able to handle a situation beforehand which is, you know, sounds an awful lot like self-confidence. The prediction before that I can do it uh, is, the is the confidence that there's going to be competence at some point. So Bandura has found this Kahneman and Tversky talk about the availability of past experiences in a domain which a person then uses in order to make a prediction about something. So it's similar to Bandura, that it's your past achievements is something you use in order to make the prediction of, well, I handled this in the past, I'm going to handle it now. Uh, and, and lots of other people uh, um, have uh, done that as well. So uh, Richard Lazarus said that an external event is either stressful or an interesting challenge based on the perception of the person as I have the ability to handle this. If I'm in the jungle and there is movement in the bushes and I am armed and experienced in using my self-protection, I'm going to be less anxious than if I go in and I'm not armed. So it's having the coping skill that helps you to make the prediction. And the terrible thing is that this is a self-fulfilling prophecy with vicious cycles attached to it. Exactly. So if people feel like they will fail at a task, they'll be nervous, they'll display their lack of confidence, they'll then be chided and, or in some ways not listened to because they don't present themselves in a positive light. That makes them feel even worse about themselves and you get a spiral downward. Yeah. Whereas people who feel confident, even if it's false confidence, tend to elicit confidence from others, which right. makes them feel even more able to do things and often succeed beyond what their true true merit and uh, abilities would warrant. Yeah. And perfection could be playing a role where they never absorb or encode their past successes because they don't see it as as being successful. It was not not good enough. But there's another there's another notion here too that that comes into play. Um, 
that could exacerbate this. And this comes from basic research of a former colleague of mine in cognitive science. And basically what she found is that when people think a lot about something that has occurred or something about it may not have occurred, they think an awful lot about something, they have difficulty in discriminating whether that actually occurred or whether it's just fantasy. Kind of like what, you know, Freud struggled with and with, with um, sexual abuse in, in his female patients as to whether it really happened or whether they imagined it. But in basic research, she found that the more people ruminated about something, the greater the likelihood they thought it happened when it may not have happened. Or misinterpreted very small setbacks as enormous catastrophes. That's right. And then that, take out of your mind and you're completely focused. Uh, my son in the fifth grade was Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. The play, uh -huh. went on, the play went on for three and a half hours. It was ridiculously long. He had to remember you know, more than a thousand lines. He had to give four performances. He, re he made a mistake just on one line that he didn't remember. And now it's almost 50 years later, when he thinks back upon the play, he only remembers screwing up. He remembers right. the, one, the one line he didn't get right. Right. He doesn't remember the many thousands he did. Yeah. And it's your fault. No. Oh, sure. <laughs> you did the parenting. No, he hasn't. I mean, yeah. That's well, he I mean. modeled after you. Okay. You didn't mean it have done it deliberately. No, we see this is this is the disease of the I'm, I'm a classic screw up, Marvin. I don't I don't ruminate over mistakes. Okay. It was disidentifying with me. Okay. So here's the other thing about talking about classic throw up. The notions that we develop early in life, our identities, our schemas, self-schemas, is based on our experience. Some people have a lot of adverse experiences, um, either through their own doing or the doing of others, and they don't feel very competent. They don't see themselves as being really competent. And that's the self-schema. And the, the, so schemas are based on past experiences, and you can have a schema about yourself. Now, the thing about schemas is that it filters out anything that's inconsistent with it. It creates a bias. So if I have a negative view of you, for example, my schema of you interpersonally, um, then and if it's negative, then no matter what you do, I could say, yeah, well, it was just luck. Or yes, he did it here, but in another situation, he couldn't do it. So in other words, I distort reality based on, on my view of myself, of yourself, of you. Now, if I have the view of myself as being negative, either through abuse, through trauma, through growing up with a learning disability that was not diagnosed, so people said you're stupid and lazy, the view of self then filters out achievements. So it's not only perfection, but it's also inconsistent with the schema. And the schema picks up on things that are c consistent with it. Well, I, I w use the term with patients, superego uh, tri trifecta, that if you have a very harsh superego, that means you're going to be harshly judging yourself against a perfectionistic standard and always finding yourself wanting. 
Mm-hmm. You also project that out and assume that people are judging you and are as vigilant towards you as you are to yourself and that they're hypercritical even when they're not. You'll be misjudging the way people see you because you're projecting your own harsh judgments onto them. And also you'll judge other people harshly because you're applying the same perfectionistic standards to them. You can't live up to your own standards. You think people are applying unrealistic standards to you and you apply unrealistic standards to others. I like everything you said, except for the jargon. Yeah, well, I think the projection, super ego. No, I'm serious about this. Yeah, I hate jargon jargon too, but I think that that people who feel this way, who have this deep lack of confidence, that for them, it's a way of intellectualizing what's been something that's so ingrained in the way they see themselves that feels real. And by saying, of course, it is, it is, it is subjectively real. There's a subjective sense of reality. But it's 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 also there's an emotional component to it as well. And it's very, very different from what an observer can see in you. You know, the old joke, if you're walking and you slip on a banana, I find that very funny. But if I'm walking and I slip on a banana, that's that's a catastrophe. Right. Exactly. So the different perceptions of of, quote, reality. So the question is, how do we correct these mistaken perceptions and and distorted schema? That's an excellent question. As a matter of fact, that was the question I was just about to ask you. (laughs) Shaking. I I found that shaking the patient doesn't work. Getting frustrated doesn't work. Yeah. So how do you handle it? Well, I think I just mentioned the the superego metaphor. I also love the expression that the excellent is the enemy of the good enough. And that people who have a tremendous need to be perfect wind up wasting so much energy and having so much anxiety in the effort to be perfect that they often don't get the job done. It's inefficient. Wanting to be perfect is an inefficient way of living a life. I also like the expression, you don't learn from your successes, you learn from your mistakes. So is that the intervention? You give them these aphorisms? Yeah, yeah, I'm filled with cliches. Um, I have not found that to, to really work because they'll say, yes, I understand that intellectually, but emotionally, I don't believe it when I'm in the situation. Yeah, so well, I, I've, I've done things like, with, with you know, like business people, I talk about the cost ineffectiveness of their having to get every aspect of their work perfect. That in doing that, they're losing money. They're costing themselves money. And, and I'll try. And for whatever it is that the perfection, the perfectionism is displaying, I try to find examples why being a perfect parent is bad for your kids. So it's a, it's having them recognize what they would say is the negative consequence. Right. The people who want to be perfect and trying to be perfect are, are costing themselves and costing the people around them the best possible functioning they could have. The yeah. being perfect is, is an enemy of doing what needs to be done, an enemy of being good enough. Yeah. Now you're saying, well, okay, that's an intellectual concept. Will it really get to them? 
Um, I think it, it has to be played out in everyday life. I think people have to learn that your mistakes are useful. And the things they come in with that seem like tragedies usually are good learning experiences. Okay. okay. You're using the phrase played out in everyday life. I think is very, very significant uh, and imprecise. It's just as the notion of interpret the timing of the interpretation must be right but it's imprecise. It's when the person is in the negative emotional state, it's then that they have to be able to see an other reality. And in seeing that other reality, change that emotional state. In other words, there's got to be a corrective experience associated with that insight, that awareness, that metacognitive. I don't know whether you've had experience clinically using two-chair technique. But have you done any of that? No. It can I be nothing it, short of magic. I've seen it on tapes, but I've never done it. Yeah. It, it could be nothing short of magic. It's a hokey type of thing. But what happens is that when the person is under emotional arousal in one chair, they then go to the other chair and talk to themselves about another way to see it. Maybe describe more how you do it, Marvin. The way I do it is different from the way some experiential people do it. I do it thinking very much in a CBT manner. Namely, that is, um, there is the unreal, there's the emotion in a situation, a problematic emotion that comes from a core belief that is distorting the situation. I've got to be perfect or I screwed up on this. And if I'm not perfect, then it's a disaster. That goes in one chair. Describe, before you get to one chair, another chair, describe exactly how you set it up. Set it up by saying, um, I'd like to try an experiment, if you will. You've got thoughts and feelings that are internal. And sometimes it's very, very cryptic when we have these. Um, so it's hard for us to evaluate it. Let's take what's internal and make it external. Let's make it more explicit of how you're viewing the situation that's causing you to be upset. And then let's make explicit another way to look at it. So there are two ways to look at it. And you'll examine both sitting in one chair, talking to people in, in the other. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. There's a lot of videos that demonstrate you know, the technique and the, uh, the specifics of how to carry it out. But I stuff that I have seen, and there is research on this too by Les Greenberg, is that sometimes it's really miraculous how they can change their thinking when they're in that other chair, the more realistic chair, because they go into that more realistic chair with an emotional upset. So, But they are being encouraged, if, if not coerced, into thinking another way. The other chair is a way of making concrete that there's a way of looking at yourself that's different than what comes naturally. That's right. Yeah. And you can prompt the person in the unrealistic chair by saying, I have to be perfect in everything I do. I can never make a mistake. Everything. So you can be really extreme. And then you, the person goes to the other chair and says, well, that's, un you know, that does not make much sense. And then you prompt as the therapist, but you're putting tell them, tell, tell them why it doesn't make sense. So what you're doing from a CBT point of view is you're giving the person evidence 
that will contradict the misperception that is causing the distress. So you're putting the superego in one chair and the more realistic appraisal in the other chair. You're giving the person an opportunity to explore the harshest self and maybe other judgmental aspects in one chair and then to sit in another chair and take another look at it from the point of view of reality. Yeah, you, you and your jargon. Yeah, Why okay. can't you just simply say you take something that's egocentric and you that's make jargon. it ego, and make it that's, ego alien? Wow, is that jargon? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I know I know the jargon, and when mm. I say that, I could visualize right. how that occurs in therapy, and I think that's the key: watching it in therapy. You watch a two chair type thing. You watch something and experience it directly, and you'll you'll be convinced. And, that, and, you know, that's the difference between reading about it or reading uh, the research. Let me, let me just give you one quick vignette bef uh, before we stop. And this is kind of interesting. I, I once edited a book uh, called um, How Therapists Change, Dealing with Professional journey, uh, Journeys that People Have Had. And I took therapists from each of the three major orientations and described how they changed. Not one of them said they changed from reading the research. They said they changed from personal experiences. Oops, that seems to be on my side of the fence, Morgan. What do you mean? Huh? What do you mean your side of the fence? In, in terms of our debates previously about how much the research actually impacts on practice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it gets partway there, but it really doesn't convince you. Okay, one last thing before we... <laughs> before we really stop, and this time we'll really stop. Um, Jerry Davison, when he joined the faculty, he, along with many of us, were therapists in our uh, department clinic. And he did lots of research on desensitization and behavior therapy. This was before cognitive behavior therapy, of getting people to imagine and relax and things like that. He did lots of research. He comes out of his session, he comes in to my office, he says, Mom, I just got somebody to reduce their fear. And I said, yeah, what's the big deal? You've written about this. <laughs> he said, no, I, I really did it. This is something I really saw. <laughs> There's a discrepancy between using words and using experience. I guess feeling is, feeling is believing. I like that. I enlisted both of those, and it, it's not affiliated with any school. Well, maybe a future, a, a future podcast is, you know, um, talking versus experience. I like it. As a therapy intervention. I mean, that would be great. Anyway. Have a great week, Marvin. You too. See you See next you. week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.